Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Have you made the switch to NYX? Millions of women have made the switch to the revolutionary period underwear from NYX. That's K-N-I-X. Period panties from NYX are like no other, making them the number one leak-proof underwear brand in North America. They're comfy, stylish, and absorbent, perfect for period protection from your lightest to your heaviest days. They look, feel, and machine wash just like regular underwear, but feature incognito protection that has you covered. You can shop sizes from extra small to 4XL. Choose from all kinds of colors, prints, and different styles, from bikinis to boy shorts, thongs to high-rise. You've got to try NYX. See why millions are ditching disposable, wasteful period products and have switched to NYX. Go to knix.com and get 15% off with promo code TRY15. That's nix.com promo code TRY15 for 15% off life-changing period underwear. That's knix.com. Impact of Influence, the tragic story of a powerful South Carolina family and the mysterious deaths they are linked to. Hello, friend. I am so grateful. We're both so grateful that you decided to spend some time with us. Matt Harris and Seton Tucker, reach out to us. Matt Harris Podcast at gmail.com, MurdochPodcast.com, Murdoch Podcast on Facebook. Two guests today, Seton, we've got Jay Bender coming up in a minute. Yes, we're going to talk to him about journalistic shield laws and also FOIA laws. And then we will also talk with our legal analyst, John Snyder, a listener favorite. This was coming out as we are recording this podcast, and this comes from ABC4 News and Drew Tripp. Drew and Ann Emerson do a great job on that station. Uh, It says, state prosecutors in South Carolina want a judge to revoke bond for Curtis Edward Eddie Smith, an alleged co-conspirator of Alec Murdoch in an apparent drug trafficking and money laundering scheme. The SC Attorney General's office announced that a bond revocation hearing for Smith is scheduled for Thursday, August 11th. So they do not want Eddie Smith out on bond for some reason. It'll be interesting to find out what that reason is. So we're looking forward to finding out what will be said in that bond hearing that they suddenly changed it. Yeah. Because they were okay with the bond before. He hasn't been out that long, so something wrong? There has to be some new information, I would assume. Let's get to the pod and our first guest. We've had him on the show before. Love the guy. He is uh, has a national reputation as a lawyer for newspapers and broadcasters. And he's South Carolina's foremost authority on South Carolina's Freedom of Information Act, which you may hear us refer to as FOIA throughout this conversation and others. He's published a couple books on South Carolina media law. And he is Jay Bender. Hi, Jay. Hey, how you doing? Uh, We're doing great. Thank you. I'm going to refer to the state paper article written by Ted Clifford when we discuss this. What we're talking about here 
is a lawsuit connected to the 2019 death of Mallory Beach and a bunch of subpoenas that have gone out from Parker's attorney, Mark Moore. So he has subpoenaed Mark Tinsley, who represents the Beach family, and the subpoenas indicate that Moore is seeking evidence about whether Tinsley actually leaked his own presentation or photographs of Beach's body. As you recall, Vicki Ward had the pictures of Mallory Beach's body that ended up on the internet, and Tinsley's been saying he believed that leak came from the Parker side of this thing. Right. So this is kind of a separate side lawsuit where Tinsley, the attorney for the Beach family, is saying that the Beach family sustained damages because of these leaked mediation documents, which included some photos of Mallory Beach after she was found dead. And Tinsley has been saying they did it. Now they're saying, well, maybe Tinsley did it. So we've got to subpoena some things. So the subpoena sought emails and text between Tinsley and news outlets. There's some other subpoenas as well. But what we're having Jay on for is to find out if the news outlets are protected when there is a conversation between the news outlet and, and say, a source or something. So what do you think about this subpoena asking for these records between Tinsley and others and news outlets? It's a backdoor way to try to find out whether Tinsley was a source for the leak. And they specifically did not subpoena the news outlets. They subpoenaed Tinsley and others. And why would it be that they would not subpoena the news outlets? The news organizations would have a privilege against forced disclosure. It's often called a reporter shield law. And in South Carolina, we have a statute that the General Assembly has adopted. And as part of its process, it noted that a subpoena to a news organization interferes with the free flow of information to the public. And the General Assembly found that that was inconsistent with the role of a press, free press in a democracy. So we have a relatively high barrier for someone to overcome in order to seek information, whether it's confidential or not, from a news organization. So if there had been a subpoena to a news organization that I represent, the first thing I would have done would be to call the lawyer who sent the subpoena to explain the shield law. And if I were unsuccessful in getting the subpoena withdrawn voluntarily, I would probably move to quash the subpoena. That is to get a court to order that the subpoena not be effective. And that, that happens relatively frequently in South Carolina because most lawyers don't know we have a reporter shield law. They focus on their case and they say, well, the newspaper published something about it. They'll know something about this or the television station broadcast this car wreck and they'll have tapes and we can get that. And the answer is no, you can't. Uh, unless you can meet this high burden. So what if Mark Tinsley sends an email to a reporter? Is that covered under Journalistic Shield? From the reporter's side, it might not be from Tinsley's side. So does it matter in the journalistic world if there 
like I think you mentioned that it doesn't have to be secretive stuff. So you always hear about protecting a source, but if they already know who the source is, is it still protected what the source, the now known source, is saying to the reporter? Yes, because there would be an alternative method to find out what was said to the reporter, and that would be to talk with the source. Let's just say that a source calls a reporter and provides information. A subpoena to the source could be executed and require the source to testify. But a subpoena to the reporter to say, what did you learn, would be subject to the shield law and might be quashed Hmm. by the court. Well, so Vicki Ward, who is a journalist based in New York City, she submitted an affidavit, which was part of court documents. Would that create a waiver of her privilege? That would be an interesting question. Our statute says that the publication is not a waiver of the privilege, and there has to be a knowing waiver of the privilege for the shield law not to apply. Uh, I think... Vicki Ward's affidavit probably said, I got this tape or I got this photograph, but I didn't get it from Mark Tinsley. And then I guess the next reasonable question is, well, where did you get it? And I think if a subpoena were directed to her, she would have to assert the privilege and the question would come up whether or not it was waived. Uh, I think with her being in New York, uh, there will be Another jurisdictional question, a subpoena from South Carolina has no force and effect in New York. Do you remember anything like this happening before where the source was subpoenaed to get the information, the end around that we're talking about here? I don't recall one, but (laughs) I've been doing this a long time. There might have been one. There's one circumstance that was unusual where the reporter went to the source but the reporter had someone who was not a journalist along with her. And when the person who was along with the reporter was identified and subpoenaed to testify, that person had no reporter privilege to rely on. So the testimony got in that way. I just shout out, I'm a reporter, I'm a reporter. (laughs) Yeah, I think there are a couple of books that reporters should read before they start dealing with confidential sources and trying to protect sources. Uh, One of them is the fictional work, Six Days of the Condor. It was shortened to three days of the Condor for a movie because book readers have longer attention spans than moviegoers. (laughs) But the other book is uh, the steps that were taken to protect the sourcing on the material that was leaked from the National Security Agency. And those reporters took many precautions. And I think if you're working on a big enough story and, you're, and you've determined that protecting the source is vital, you need to take some of those steps almost as if you were a spy. So I, I tell reporters who are thinking about doing stuff like that to hone up on their spy craft. That book, that movie was great. Robert Redford, Faye Dunaway, great. How does South Carolina's journalistic shield laws differ from other states? There, it's a two-pronged approach. And we have an interesting situation in South Carolina because the federal courts recognize a constitutionally-based privilege 
against compelled testimony or production from a reporter, but our state courts do not. So if if a case is in federal court, the reporter will have greater protection than if in state court. But in state court, I think our SHIELD law is relatively strong because it protects material that is confidential as well as material that is not confidential, material that's published and material that is unpublished. Some other states say the privilege disappears when you publish information. And the notion of why you should have a shield law probably varies from state to state. Again, South Carolina's General Assembly made the finding that having protection for reporters served the public interest. And I think that's the philosophical foundation for protecting reporters from having to be witnesses in cases because it interferes with the witness continuing to cover an event where the witness or where the reporter would have experience. And it also raises the question of the neutrality of the reporter. If you're compelled to testify in a case and you're required to disclose information that you had from a source, you're going to find it difficult to get other sources in the future. And as a consequence, significant information will be unavailable to the public. Now, with respect to the Freedom of Information Act, our law is good, I think. And I say that because I was involved for a number of years in lobbying and getting it adopted and getting it amended and in arguing cases under it. The problem is cultural in South Carolina. And it goes all the way back to the plantation days where the people who owned the plantation made the rules and announced them and expected everybody to follow them. And that form of governance was transferred from the plantations to the mill village where the mill owners made the rules and expected the mill hands to follow them. And we don't have plantation owners and mill owners making the rules now but we have far too many people in public office or in public positions who are under the mistaken impression that they are in their position as our leaders and rulers and not as our representatives. Mm. And they resent the notion that the public should have any influence in advance of a decision being made. And it's I've been fighting that cultural problem in South Carolina since we first got the Freedom of Information Act in 1974. Now I see much less enthusiasm in the General Assembly because the people who are in favor of secrecy, government agencies and people who receive public money but don't want to account to the public for how it's spent, are gaining much greater influence. And the courts don't seem to have the vigorous approach to enforcing the law as they once did. So couple that with the economic constraints placed on news organizations, because it was news organizations that lobbied for the law and litigated the law, you have far less openness in government in South Carolina today than you did 10 or 15 years ago. Next, I want to talk about a FOIA request for some jailhouse tapes by Liz Farrell at Fitz News. I thought it was really creative. I never would have thought of that. And I wanted to get your opinion of what you thought about it. I thought it was a great idea. And it's it's very clearly a public record. 
because our definition of public record includes books, tapes, maps, all sorts of records, regardless of physical form or characteristic. So what do you think about the far-reaching implications of jailhouse calls being made public? Well, I don't see any reason they should not be made public because they are public record and the inmate placing the call is warned that the call will be recorded. And there is no privacy expectation on the part of the inmate. Now, conversations with lawyers are privileged and I think are probably not recorded. And even if they were recorded, the information would not be made available under the Freedom of Information Act. But I see nothing wrong with recordings of jailhouse conversations being made public, particularly where you have a circumstance like in the Murdoch case, where it appears that the inmate is taking actions that seem inconsistent with constraints that have been imposed upon him by courts, moving money around and things like that. I definitely think, Alec, moving money around is newsworthy. For sure. I want to know, though, uh, Jay, could an attorney talk to an inmate and just relay information to family members and it still falls under privilege? There has been some discussion lately that inmates are placing calls to their attorneys and then the attorneys using the technology available on almost every telephone in the world now uh, are forwarding the calls to a third number in an attempt to shelter the conversations. And I suspect knowing that your calls are going to be recorded unless they're to a lawyer would provide some incentive to do that. Now, I think the lawyers would have a difficult time explaining why they did that if it ever came to light. But there is some suspicion that calls from inmates are being routed through attorney offices so that they're not going to be recorded. One question I had was, who does Journalistic Shield apply to? I'm not a journalist, and I just was wondering if there's some sort of criteria determining who Shield applies to. We don't use the word journalist in our statute. We talk about persons or organizations engaged in the gathering and dissemination of news and information to the public. So I would think you would qualify under the SHIELD law as one who gathers and disseminates information to the public. We don't have a definition for journalists in this country, and there's a historical basis for that because you never know where worthwhile speech will come from and who is the most famous writer of the revolutionary era other than Thomas Jefferson and the Declaration of Independence, Thomas Paine. Tom Paine was a pamphleteer. Would he, and not associated with the news organization, would he be entitled to be protected under a shield law? And I think the answer is yes. And that's why there's resistance to identifying who is a journalist. It's gotten a more interesting question with the evolution of the internet, and podcasts. Uh, Jay, thank you. I appreciate it. We'll uh, talk to you soon, I hope. And if you do get your trip to Antarctica that you're dreaming of, we'll uh, have to get a report on how Antarctica was. Well, I'm sure it'll be dramatic. Uh, My major concern is uh, going to and from on the Drake Passage because I, for years, have had a susceptibility to motion sickness. Really? Oh, no. I'll have 
I'll have to get some very good drugs. <laughs> I tried those wristband things on a cruise one time, and they work pretty well because I'm prone to it as well. Did you do okay on your Alaska trip? Your Alaska cruise? I did. Fortunately, we were only on open water one or two nights, and one night the wind was coming across the bow, and the sea was a little rougher than it had been. Uh, the inside passage is protected, but once we were out in the North Pacific. It bounced around a little bit, but I found that Dramamine and a weed dram of single malt scotch uh, <laughs> sitting sitting in the bar at the bow was helpful. Yeah. <laughs> at least that's what you told your wife. That's the way to do it. <laughs> well, Jay, she, thank she, you. She I appreciate was, it. We'll talk soon. Take care. Good to talk. All right, Jay. Thank that. you. Bye-bye. Bye. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. Time once again for our legal analyst, former defense attorney, former prosecutor, John Snyder. Hey, John. Hello, everyone out there. We just got done talking with Jay Bender about this lawsuit connected to the death of Mallory Beach, about the photos of her body being leaked to the Internet, who leaked them, who did not leak them. That's what the big battle is going on. And so in this one exhibit, Tinsley is talking to a PI who was hired to follow Paul Murdoch. So, John, did you find anything troublesome in the communication between Tinsley and the PI? I went back and read all of them. It, at first, they seem a little... At first, you're like, well, why in the world is he talking to the defendant's PI in a lawsuit where he's the, the main lawyer? But when you read the text, it's him trying to communicate and gather information on behalf of his client. It, it may be overly friendly. It may be slightly aggressive in trying to get the PI to talk to him. But I didn't see anything after reading the text that rise to the level of professional misconduct. I mean, she asserts that she's represented. Uh, he recognizes that and says, hey, I can't talk to you until I know for a fact that you're not represented. And so those communications seem appropriate and in within the bounds of the law. Why does it matter if the PI was hired by Parkers or their attorneys? It's problematic for the people that don't want them released. When an attorney hires a private investigator or any expert, that is work product, and that's covered by attorney-client privilege and attorney privilege in uh, how they prosecute their case. When a party hires their own private investigator, there is no expectation of privacy. There is no privilege. And so the fact that Parker's hired these PIs makes it very unlikely that they can keep this you know, anything out of the public's eye. The exhibit has the text between the PI and Mark Tinsley. What do you think Tinsley was trying to get to when 
texting with the PI? I think he wants to know what the scope of her representation is. You know, what was she hired to do? Was she hired just to conduct surveillance on Paul or was she hired to besmirch, uh, embarrass and muddy up the reputation of the plaintiffs? And so he, he's trying to find her basis of, of investigating in, in any of the matters related to Paul. But I think what Parkers is ultimately trying to find out is whether Tinsley released these mediation and confidential documents to others. That's right. At, at the end of the day, Parker's new attorney is on kind of a warpath to show, hey, my client didn't have anything to do with this release or the basis of this lawsuit and creating the injury that Tinsley asserts on behalf of the Beach family. He's trying to get evidence to show that some other party unrelated to him or his kind of team had something to do with it being released. But he also wants Tinsley to be kind of kicked off this because of this behavior. So he's, that's what he's asking for, right? He he is saying that Tinsley has now become a fact witness and probably needs to recuse himself because he might be called on to testify related to how this information was released. That's the basis. It'll be interesting to see what the court does with that. Right, because if it comes out that Tinsley did release information, what happens? Well, if Tinsley did release the information and he has sued a, a number of other parties accusing them of the very thing he did, he is going to face a malpractice case from the Beach family. He's going to face discipline from the bar and probably lawsuits from the defendants for libel and slander. Well, what about if Parker's released this information? Are they in trouble? It depends on if Parker's themselves had knowledge or whether the attorneys for Parker's released it. So that would that would be really the the factual uh, crux is is whether did Parker's give this out or did one of the attorneys or someone working for Parker's and their representation release it. And his the scope that he's asking for, it says he subpoenaed Verizon for records of all calls and texts between Tinsley and six other phone numbers beginning on February 23rd, 2019, the night of the boat crash, which is interesting to me because I didn't even know Tinsley was involved the very night of the boat crash. I think they're trying to get get a parameter and, you know, like, did Tinsley get a call from the Beach family and then immediately call a reporter? Okay. I understand why the why the why that date is there is to try to get their arms around all the communication with these six phone numbers. And I should say that I've talked to a handful of attorneys in in the area and, and Mark Tinsley has a, a very a great reputation. Um, so I wanted to point that out. But it's just going to be interesting if it comes out that both sides possibly leaked information out. Here's a here's a very important point, okay? If somebody that was working for Parker's released it, but they weren't an attorney and they weren't aware of the requirement of confidentiality of mediation documents, this may not go very far 
you know, from a, from a legal standpoint. It's a so big nothing burger then. Potentially, just yeah. because if somebody if somebody just releases it and they don't have any of the, the, the institutional knowledge to know that that was confidential, they there may not be any legal responsibility to be attributed one place or the other. Well, because it could have also come from law enforcement. It could have come from a number of places. And and if it was anybody other than maybe Parker himself or his lawyers or the Beach family or their lawyers, I don't think I'm not sure that there's going to be liability. We also have a subpoena to the PR firm that was originally hired by Parker's in the aftermath of the beach boating accident. What is their liability? Again, the PR aspect of this case is we don't know what the scope was of the PR firm. And it may have been, you know, we've you've been hired to get nice stories out there about us on the internet to give us search engine optimization for nice stories, not being a defendant in an accidental death case. So the other thing that's of note is that whatever they were hired to do didn't last very long. And there's been plenty of reports from the owner of the PR group specifically saying we had a difference in opinion on how to carry out the work that they were being asked to do. And we ended our representation. I don't see any liability coming down the pike for the Lawrence group in this matter. I'll give you a quote from uh, Donahue's lawyer, who's also a state senator. See, that's how it works in South Carolina. Uh, Sandy Sen told the state, unfortunately, my client and others who are mere witnesses are being drugged into a fight where the attorneys for the plaintiff and the defense cannot get along. Take a little jab at him there. So let's move on to this motion to stay, which was filed by Elk's attorneys to delay the boat trial hearing. So, John, what is this and why? So this is actually a, a pretty traditional motion to be filed in a case where you have a defendant in a civil case and a criminal case. And so if the civil case proceeds forward, your rights and protections under the Constitution can be waived or accidentally bowled over. And so lawyers that are representing people that are being civil, you know, civilly sued and criminally prosecuted will file a motion to stay. That would stop the case against Alec only from moving forward. And theoretically, the rest of the civil case could move forward. But it's 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 not unusual. It's not him getting special treatment. Uh, it's it's making sure that the criminal case doesn't have any uh, distractions from moving forward at a at a quick pace. Now there are other criminal charges against Alec. What process do they have to go through to decide? Does the murder come first? Does the drug trafficking? Do the, the white uh, collar crimes? How do they determine the order? That's that is a fantastic question, and that's that's something that uh, I've I've given a lot of thought to because if you if you try it all together, which I think you could, you 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 start off presenting evidence of the financial crimes and you move forward through that. Then you wind up with the murder because the theory the states put forward is that the murders are connected 
to the cover-up potentially of the financial crimes. And so if there's a factual nexus through the whole conspiracy, they may try to do them all together. Or you, you, you hit them one at a time. So you do the financial crime stuff in one county, he gets oh. convicted potentially. Then you do it in another county, gets convicted. Okay, so now his record level is going up. Mm. And so by the time he gets to sentencing on a first-degree murder charge, he is a convicted felon with a record that's rather long based on all the indictments that are out there. And so the prosecutors may decide to use that as leverage to get him to enter a, a global plea agreement, potentially. Or if he isn't playing ball, they'll knock one pin off at a time and just he'll have, you know, some some sentence at the end of it that's like 500 years. Well, Alec attorneys would not want it as one giant ball of charges, I'm sure. Would they do they have any say in assuming that it's not together? Because I'm sure they can fight that. But do they have any say the order? And how about the feds? Where the feds come into play? Defense has no say in how the state will prosecute their case. That is a that's that is a right that the state has, and the feds have no obligation to listen to the defense or the state. But I'm but I but I'm confident in this matter they're all working together. And uh, that leads to this question, which our producer Dwayne he's got on top of it: Would Griffin and Harpootlian represent Alec in all of these charges, or will they farm out? some of the white collar stuff or the drug charges, those kind of things. Uh, my guess is they'll represent them, him in all of them because they need to make sure that they have a unified theory of defense. Okay. And so if you had multiple lawyers representing him in different ways, it, it could cause issues in what admissions were given, what mm. negotiations were go going through. So I think they'll keep a handle on all of these cases. And they're, and they're, you know, they're lawyers that have law firms big enough to handle this wide of a, of a criminal conspiracy defense. John Snyder, always great, man. Appreciate it. Thanks guys. You guys have a great week. Later, man. Bye. All right, bye. Have some uh, listener emails, comments, etc. And this is from, I think it's from Sarah. I'm going to cut off her name, though. A podcast, just what I was looking for. The questions I want to ask, Seton ask. The details of the case and process of investigation are found in this podcast. I really enjoy Matt's ability to look at all sides of a situation. Unique insights from local hosts provide a side of the story that may not be understood in other parts of the country. I moved to South Carolina in 1993-ish and was shocked by the small town nature with small circles of influences in every area from who owns and runs utility companies, seriously, she says, to the legal hierarchy, who you know is everything. Excellent podcast, excellent presentation. And let's give you this one. The Murdoch Podcast to listen to. No tabloid journalism here. Thanks, guys, for your honest professional reporting. You may not agree with the facts, but at least you get the real facts. Thanks for your professionalism. Oh, we appreciate nice. it. I do appreciate it. Thank you, everybody, for uh, commenting. And we have a lot of response on the 
I'll call it the Dwayne episode. <laughs> oh, lots of lots of comments. People really went crazy over that Dwayne. They loved it. But he was he was bringing up, enhancing some of the quality, th- saying things that he heard. We also have a another sound engineer, which we'll get to uh, hopefully next week or something like that, who's also broken down some of the the nine one one call. So thank you, Dwayne, for that. Thank you, as always. We're so grateful that you spent time with us. Reach out, MurdochPodcast.com, Murdoch Podcast on Facebook, Matt Harris Podcast at gmail.com, and we will talk soon. Join Hala Taha for actionable advice from the brightest minds in the world on the Young and Profiting Podcast. Author and academic Arthur Brooks on what success isn't. The husband was confessing to his wife that he might as well be dead. And I'm thinking, whoa, what's wrong with this guy? I turn around to get a look and it turns out to be one of the most famous men in the world. The world tells you that if you are profiting, money, power, pleasure, fame, you're going to be happy. And that's a bogus formula. The Young and Profiting Podcast, wherever you listen. Did you guys hear about that couple that went on vacation and one spouse murdered the other? In fact, the entire vacation was planned just so that they could make the murder look like an accident. Ah, so like a slaycation. Oh boy, sounds like a fun new true crime podcast to me. On every episode of Slaycation, we'll examine true cases of people who were killed while on vacation. Was it murder? Or just a horrible accident. That's up to you and the law to decide. But either way, if you leave for your vacation in the plane and come home under the plane, you've definitely gone on a slaycation. Join us every week for a fascinating new episode. 911, what's your emergency? But make sure to pack your body bags because getting away can be murder. This is Slaycation. From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia, Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule, history so interesting, it's criminal.